Support for this podcast comes from Canva. When you look good, you feel good. But when your presentations look great, it can feel like you're walking on a cloud. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. Start with a designer-made template. Use it as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Episode 98, the atomic number for Californium Titanic was the top grossing film in 1998. What did Jeffrey Dahmer say to Lorena Bobbitt? Are you going to eat that? That's bad. That's bad. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 98th episode of the Prof G Pod. In today's episode, we speak with Lynn Alden, a full-time investor and independent analyst. We discuss America's debt cycle, emerging markets, Bitcoin, and Lynn's investment strategy. But first, what's happening? Here we are. It's Labor Day to bust to the new year. Things feel eerily reminiscent. Anyways, for one, I am back from vacation and ready to rock. I went to Ibiza. Ibiza, Ibiza. That's right. Went into the men's bathroom, true story. And they offered me something called Fanta Naranja, which is a form of Molly or this thing called MDMA. And you know what I found out when I was on X? I like me. That's right. I hate me less and less under a drug initially administered to couples during talk therapy. Then I went back to the same bathroom, different guy, and he offered me something called a rim job. And the good news is he found my hip replacement. Good bathroom sex humor. Good bathroom sex humor. Anyway, none of that is true. I was in Ibiza, but I didn't do a whole lot there. Mostly hung at the hotel because I was so freaked out around COVID. Came back, went to this sandbar off the coast of the Atlantic called Nantucket. Really leaning into my white privilege now. And am about to go back to Florida, but have delayed going back to Florida because I have an unvaccinated 11-year-old, and we have what could only be described as a mad king and someone whose uh, politicization has moved to depravity and has decided to somehow weaponize or politicize mass, and crazy fucking parents have decided that school board meetings are an opportunity for them to put on display their mental illness and their lack of citizenship. I'm not even sure how many of these fucking whack jobs even have kids. Anyways, that's nice to be moving around the world Uh, And my problems are most people's problems on their best day, but it's just weird to think that we are now in an era where you're no longer going back home because of your fear for your kid going back to school. School used to be the safe place. All of a sudden, back to school has become this very weird time. So for better or for worse, kids are back in classrooms and back on campuses as the Delta variant extends its march across the U.S. The CDC said last week that the hospitalization rate 
for COVID-19 among kids ages zero through 17 rose fivefold from late June to the middle of August. It just shocks me that the narrative in the US, really our superpower as a nation is our optimism and our narrative can be self-fulfilling. I think the economy's good, I'm optimistic. Uh, I buy a car, the economy does get better because I put more money into the system, which creates more jobs, more wealth, upward spiral. If I envision my future, if I write down, I am going to get a job and I envision my list and I write down my list that I can literally make the future happen, I can pull it forward. Problem is the virus didn't get the fucking memo around our narrative. And every time we imagine what the future is supposed to be like, wasn't this supposed to be the virus that doesn't affect kids? Well, we like that narrative, right? Well, it's okay. This virus is awful and it's tragic, but it's mostly killing Nana and Pop-Pop, which is, which is meaningful, but not a profound tragedy uh, or not what I'd call terrifying, but it doesn't, it doesn't impact kids. Well, guess what? The virus doesn't seem to care about uh, our narrative. Bloomberg reported that just after one week of school in Hillsborough County, Florida, more than 10,000 students were in isolation or quarantine because of exposure to COVID. At the higher education level, more than 1,000 colleges and universities have adopted vaccination requirements for at least some students and staff. It just strikes me as fucking crazy we don't have vaccine mandates. When we look at what we ask people to do or have asked people to do in this country in terms of the sacrifice, whether it's going into the jungle or some field in Europe to get a bullet in the gut or to pay more than 50% of your income to the government, Whatever it might be, it just strikes me just strange that we've decided somehow that, oh my God, a mask, that's, that's just too much. That's a bridge too far. What the fuck? At least nine states have banned or restricted school mask mandates. I just, how did we get here? And as many as 20 Republican-led states forbid vaccine mandates in some form. Some universities in these states are getting creative to incentivize students to take the vaccine. Texas A&M. University is holding a raffle that only vaccinated students can enter. The prize, free tuition for a year. It's probably worth about seven or 800 grand at this point. All right. In other higher ed news, the Wall Street Journal reported on a trend that's been playing out over the last few decades. Women are far outpacing men when it comes to higher education enrollment rates. And the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated that trend. Again, COVID-19's enduring feature will be as an accelerant more than a change agent. Nothing's really changing, it's just accelerating. The journal found that there are one and a half million fewer students attending U.S. colleges and universities today than there were just five years ago. Men have accounted for 71% of this decline. There are some scary numbers that don't bode well for universities. More have gone out of business in the last five years than in the previous 20 years. And whereas the number of college-age students had accelerated over the last 20 years, it's going to decelerate over the next 20 years. Peter Drucker, kind of my business or economics role model said every major trend in society can be reversed engineered to demographics. True story, I used to subscribe to American Demographics. There was a magazine called American Demographics and I would put it on my table to ensure I would never have sex with a stranger. The ultimate prophylactic. Anyway, two-year community colleges registered their biggest declines in male enrollment during the 2021 academic year. Think about this, biggest declines in males in 2021 uh, at two-year community colleges. An analysis of census data by the Pell Institute for the journal found that this trend is consistent across race, geography, and economic background with poor and working class white men having lower enrollment rates than young black, Latino, and Asian men. What the fuck, isn't that strange? Hmm, maybe it's time, is it the mother of all overcorrections? Is it that young 
uneducated white men have more opportunities and have decided that college has gotten so expensive, it's just a product trade-off? Don't know, don't know. Furthermore, men are not applying to college at the same rate as women. Women mature sooner. I think a lot of men are confused about their role. I think a lot of young men uh, look at dad and think, well, okay, I have outdoor plumbing. Doesn't that mean I deserve a house and two cars regardless of my effort? What is going on here? According to the common application, for the 2021-2022 school year, women submitted nearly 1 million more college applications than men. Now, reporting on this trend is not to say there hasn't been tremendous upside around the fact there are more women enrolled in school. It's a good thing. We needed this correction, if you will. Uh, and there's still, however, the gender wage gap. Women with a college degree earn less on average than men with a college degree, although I think it's been narrowed among women under the age of 30. But because more women are getting college degrees, more women are reaping higher earnings and their less educated male counterparts. And the gender wage gap, uh, see above, has narrowed considerably. All right. So why are dudes abandoning education? Is there something about the way we are raising boys that makes them less ambitious? Do they mature later? A 2013 report found that boys have less understanding than girls about how their future success in college and their careers is directly linked to their academic effort in middle and high school. I think that's one thing we all struggle with as parents is how do you connect reward with grit or effort or good behavior? Because right now my kids don't really need to connect uh, anything with anything. They basically get up, they don't make their beds. I'm embarrassed to say that. Occasionally I get angry and say, make your bed and they do it once. I know joke on Sundays was cleaning day at my household. My mom and I used to clean the house. And I used to slip out of the house early to go into Westwood to play at this arcade. And if I hadn't cleaned my bathroom to the extent she thought was up to standards, she would call around until she found one of my friends and tell them to go to the arcade and tell me to come home that I had to like make my bed or clean my sink. I often say, if I had what my kids have, I wouldn't have what I have. I don't see any reason why kids, or at least my kids, are going to easily connect uh, any sort of activity with anything to aspire towards because their lives are so amazing now. If I were my son at the age of 11, unfortunately, he doesn't listen to this, so I can say this. The only thing I know I would have in my life uh, as an adult is a Range Rover and a cocaine habit. I just, I connected um, work very early because I had jobs. We're actually going to try and get my son a job at the CBS uh, as he's turning 14. But I think we all struggle with how to make those connections, right? How to connect, sacrifice, putting off present consumption for future consumption, how to maintain impulse control, and how to, again, make those connections. The most important predictor of boys' achievement, the report said, is the extent to which the school culture expects values and rewards academic effort, but the rewards have dwindled while the costs have skyrocketed. Putting the men aside, should we be surprised by the declining number of students attending U.S. colleges and universities? Likely not. Far too many colleges have abandoned their purpose as public servants and preyed on the hopes and dreams of the middle class to line their own pockets. Prices have exploded 1,400% since 1978, but the product has hardly changed at all. It's pretty simple. When the product doesn't get any better, but you keep raising the price on it, eventually people leave or eventually people decide to go to another or choose another product. In the late 80s and early 90s, I attended five years of college at UCLA. Should have been four. It was five. That extra year was worth it. A lot of Planet of the Apes, a lot of pot smoking, see above worth it. And two years of business school at UC Berkeley, the cost, a grand total 
of somewhere between, I think it was eight and 10 grand in tuition for all seven years. Fast forward to the present day, $10,000 won't cover two classes at NYU where tuition costs over $80,000. Think about that, 80 grand. And by the way, at NYU, it's still worth it. You know, the top schools, that investment is still worth it. Where you get screwed and where I think men are abandoning university is for a mediocre school, all right? I can't apply to NYU, I'm not gonna get in. I don't have those sorts of grades, those sorts of achievements. So I apply to a second tier school, I don't get in there and I end up only getting into a third tier school. And what's most corrupt about pricing at universities isn't that price increases, but the price cohesion or the price collusion or essentially the cartel that is one of the most corrupt cartels in the world. And that is they, that all universities raise their prices in lockstep. So what ends up happening is because of the incredibly low or artificially low admissions rate and the psychic income we get as administrators, academics and alumni of these universities, we keep arbitraging good kids down to mediocre schools who pay essentially a Mercedes price for a Hyundai. And I think people and families are just uh, fed up. So why are these men leaving the higher education system in droves? The men interviewed by the Wall Street Journal explained how they feel lost, worried about their futures, frustrated by the class material, uh, or just quit school to go to work, uh, or just have no plan in mind. Uh, this is... I think this is really an existential crisis uh, in our country. And that is, and I've said this before, the most dangerous person in the world is a young man with no job uh, who's broke and in no relationship. And that's not to say that uh, it's more important that men have a future than women. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying young men who are bored and not attaching to school, not attaching to work or not attaching to a relationship are more dangerous, uh, unfortunately. And some of this, there is a big upside. We needed... Um, People of color, women needed some catching up, if you will. So I think admissions departments were, uh, I think affirmative action is a good thing. I think it should be economically based, not race-based or gender-based, uh, which would accomplish probably 80% of the same thing. But there's definitely something strange going on. So how do we fix this? What, what do we do here? At the end of the day, we need more on-ramps to a good middle-class lifestyle. We need more vocational training. We need to recognize that 50 to 70% of people are not gonna end up with a traditional four-year uh, degree. We need to stop this gestalt of thinking you have failed as a parent if your kid doesn't get into college. I have that. I'll be heartbroken. I gotta be honest, I'll be heartbroken if my kid doesn't get into school. But the reality is some kids just aren't cut out for college. It's just not what they wanna do. They don't have those skills. So we can't just decide, all right, you either go to Yale or you're a total fuck up. There's gotta be some some gray here, some 50 shades of gray, and we need to create more vocational opportunities similar to what they do in Europe and many countries in Asia. And when you look at the opportunities, because of the dearth of talented people that have gone into sort of the vocational professions, you can make pretty good money. And there's a huge mismatch in the industry's hiring right now. For God's sakes, try and get a plumber, try and build a house and get an electrician. It's just, it's just crazy what a certain amount of certification or apprenticeships uh, can do in our economy right now. And we need to offer more people those types of opportunities and be more formal about it. I also think we just need greater connective tissue, whether it's some sort of public service or a Corona Corps or some sort of training that gives people the opportunity to serve in the agency of others, whether it's in healthcare, social services, that gives them some technology skills, socialization skills, management skills, but there needs to be more elegant on-ramps and a recognition, a recognition that a kid, a kid finding a career somewhere he can add value, somewhere she can add value, that doesn't necessarily mean college, maybe better, maybe a better option 
than sending them to Joey Bag of Donuts U, which they don't enjoy, but they encourage huge debt for. College is a great way. College is a great path, but it can't be the only path. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Lynn Alden to discuss America's debt cycle, Bitcoin, and her investment strategy. When your work presentations and docs look good, you look good. You can design stunning work presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. You can start with a designer-made template, then use that as a springboard for your design. Add images, graphics, charts, and more from Canva's massive media library. Or get a huge head start with AI-powered Canva presentations and docs. Just describe what you want with a few words, and Canva will generate amazing slides and text in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever work task you need to get done. Look, we all need to visually communicate at work. Canva makes it easy to get your point across while looking professional. And at the end of it all, that stunning Canva presentation is going to make you look good. Wow any audience and finish your work faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Lynn Alden, a full-time investor and independent analyst. Lynn, where does this podcast find you? Oh, I'm in uh, like uh, New Jersey, Atlantic City. Do you love Atlantic City? Not you're, really, no. You're representing now. No, I'm not, not really? A, no, I'm not a huge uh, fan. Okay, I, well, I moved here a long time ago for a, a job, uh, and I stuck around even though I no longer yeah. work there. Um, but I'll probably be moving in the years ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's bust right into it. Uh, I want to talk to you about America's debt cycle. Where are we in that cycle right now? And where do you think we're headed and what's good or bad about where we are? So historically, it looks a lot, you know, we have to go back to like the 1940s to find a similar period of time where we are now. Uh, And so, you know, Mm -hmm. using, say, for example, Ray Dalio's conception of long-term debt cycle, uh, you know, it places us very towards the end of it. And so if we think of, say, the short-term business cycle, the five to 10-year credit cycle, you know, you have accumulating debt in the system, then you have some sort of deleveraging event, some sort of, you know, recessionary event. Policymakers come in, they cut interest rates, they do do stimulus, uh, we build back up from the debt. And basically, if you string a bunch of those together, what has happened over the past several decades is that you get higher and higher debt as a percentage of GDP. GDP, like lower, low, like higher lows and higher highs, and then you get lower and lower interest rates, lower lows, lower highs, until you get all the way down to zero interest rates. Uh, you get very, very high debt to GDP levels. And the last time we saw that happen was was the 1930s, and then it extended into the into the 40s. Uh, and so basically, when they run into you know this much debt, generally what you get is uh, you know you're more prone to currency devaluations, where they essentially hold interest rates below. You know, prevailing inflation rate for a period of time. That that's kind of the historical precedent. So, 
I, I'm I'm old school, and I, I I can hear people calling me boomer when I say this. But I think it, at some point, if you just keep issuing debt, it becomes a problem, and that you're not managing your financial affairs well. And it begins. It isn't a problem until it is. And I look at these record levels of debt, and there is no free lunch. And yet I see this emerging theories around a modern monetary theory of like points on a scoreboard. Do you feel our current levels of debt are dangerous? I think they're, yeah, I think they're pretty dangerous, especially if you're holding cash or bonds. Uh, and so there was a study mm-hmm. a while ago, I, f- I forget the the firm that put it out, um, but it showed that, you know, over the past, say, 200 years, they looked at, you know, 50, 50 I think it was 52 countries that had debt to GDP reach 130% or so. Uh, and 51 uh, of them over the next, say, 10 to 15 years, either defaulted uh, in some cases or, uh, you know, inflated away a significant part of that debt. So they had a major currency devaluation. Bondholders did not get paid back in real terms, with the one exception being Japan, who's managed to push that out farther than anyone else so far in history. But they have other things going for them. They have a, you know, they have a current account surplus. They're the world's, you know, largest debt international investment position, creditor nation. Uh, so they have other factors on their side besides the debt. But yeah, generally, when you get this high of a debt level, you know, historically there has been very significant consequences. Mainly that that you know the bonds on on the debt, the mathematics don't work anymore for positive real rates. So essentially, mm-hmm. bondholders have to get financially repressed, and that's generally the best of case. That's kind of the gradual you know, bleeding out of purchasing power if you continue holding bonds after that point. So but how do you take that information and act on it, though? And it seems like everyone is acting on it. Is it just you need to have, you need to own assets and you need to buy stocks? What other, what else can you do to prepare for this or to recognize where we are in this part of the cycle in terms of your own economic well-being? Well, that's essentially it. Basically, having exposure to scarce assets, so it could be high-quality equities. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you have to watch out for valuations. The, you know, the risk there is that you right. know we've already squeezed a lot of juice out of the equity market. You could say, or we're in some some metrics show that we're record high valuations. Other ones show that we're maybe the second most expensive we've ever been. But there's a big spectrum across the board. So, for example, we have a bigger growth to value ratio divide in terms of valuation than we've than we've seen for a very very long time. Um, we also see that that many foreign markets are not that expensive. There's out of favor sectors uh, that are not that expensive, and so historically, what generally does well in this type of environment, as you'd expect from you know a weakening currency, is for for harder assets to do well. And if you get outright inflation, then generally commodities uh, and other kind of you know scarce assets like that can do well. And so if you look back historically, commodities over the very long run underperform many other asset classes like equities because they're not able to compound very well. It's kind of a poor business overall, uh, but there are certain mm-hmm. decades where they they radically outperform and those tend to be those more inflationary decades. So you, uh, some very credible media institutions and people come to you for advice on the following question. What asset classes are you, do you think will overperform the market? Which asset classes do you think will underperform the market? And then let's talk about um, specific companies to the extent uh, you're willing. Where, What are you telling your clients right now? Generally, I think that emerging market value shows a lot of promise. So if you look mm-hmm. at areas that have underperformed over the past decade, uh, it's generally foreign markets, it's generally value. Uh, but of course, I think investors have to mm-hmm. be cautious there, right? Because of course, the big, the big trap with value investing is to find value traps, things that look cheap, 
but they continue, you know, they're melting ice cubes. They're basically losing out on business. They're obsolete. Um, so basically to go abroad and to find things that have not been propped up to unusual valuations. And so if you look at the U.S. equity market, essentially what we've done over the past couple of decades is that we've run these very large structural trade deficits over the past, especially the past 25 years, starting in the mid 90s. And the foreign sector took those those you know those dollars that they earn because for them it's a surplus and they they put it back into us assets they used to buy a lot of treasuries for example uh but in in recent decades mm-hmm. they've been increasingly buying us stocks us real estate uh, and so we've had this really strong feedback loop where we we keep basically hollowing out our manufacturing base running these structural trade deficits in a way that say other developed countries have not done and a lot of those dollars flow back into our equity market and so the big risk i think to watch out for and it's hard to say when this might happen or how high go first is that if that loop starts ending, if we, if we start basically trying to rein in our trade surpluses, if for whatever reason the world start, stops viewing U.S. equity markets as kind of the, the best place to be, that trade can unwind pretty violently over a long period of time. Uh, and in that case, you'd probably mm-hmm. get outperformance from some of the things that you know are doing well fundamentally, but that just have not gotten a lot of capital inflow. So that's generally emerging market value. Uh, you know, could be uh, even even U.S. value to some extent, uh, I think you know some mm-hmm. part of a bond portfolio can be uh, replaced by gold. Um, I, I you know I think that Bitcoin uh, is a good uh, percentage of a portfolio. Uh, having a non-zero Bitcoin position is something I've been advocating since uh, around April 2020. Uh, and so I think there's a variety of different, you know, alternative assets that someone can put in to maybe replace a part of that. You know, say the 40% of their you know, if they have a 60-40 portfolio, say taking some of those bonds and putting it into some other types of assets. So we're going to circle back to Bitcoin, but I just want to double click on emerging markets. Like, So good companies in emerging markets. So uh, Cablevision, the, the, the data, kind of the data monopoly or the cable, you know, broadband provider in Argentina. Just stock hasn't gone anywhere. Constant outflows. Is it a is it good companies and markets like that that have been overvalued that just look cheap? Is it just cycling out of the American sort of, if you will, tech play into good companies? Or is it Europe where private equity firms are crawling all over British companies because they look cheap, relatively speaking? Be more specific about markets and types of companies that you think you're bullish on. So, for example, I've been pretty bullish on the Russian equity market around these levels. Uh, there's not been a lot of uh, enthusiasm. Oh my gosh, the Russian equity market. Russian equity market, yes. Lynn from Atlantic City likes the Russian equity market. Well, it's funny if you look I'm at sorry, the- I'm sorry, say more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, so what I do, for example, I look at a bunch of different markets and I, mm-hmm. I first I, took it, I look at the macro situation. So I look at things like what are the debt levels, public and private debts, uh, so Russia, for example, is mm-hmm. one of the lowest in that regard. Uh, then you can look at things like, you know, do they have, a, uh, you know, what is their fiscal situation like? Uh, what is mm-hmm. their, how much foreign exchange reserves do they have relative to their, either their GDP or their money supply, however you want to measure it. And so, for example, using that type of metric, you'd identify ahead of time that things like Argentina and Turkey uh, are not, we're not very well positioned to defend their currency, whereas something like Russia, even mm-hmm. though they have a lot of currency volatility, they actually have massive uh, foreign exchange reserves to defend it if they want to. Um, and their equity valuations are very cheap. Um, and then if you do expect a reasonable decade for commodities, right? So the past decade was was very poor mm-hmm. for commodities. And so Russian equities did very poor. If you expect better performance of commodities, uh, you know, especially from, you know, very cheap levels compared to, you know, their similar counterparts in other countries, they can do pretty well. And and 
there's a lot of corruption in the Russian equity market, but the large caps generally mm-hmm. are, many of them are run uh, in a Western style. Uh, and so, for example, if you look at Luke Oil as 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 a you know a specific mm-hmm. example, uh, they've historically actually been better managed, you can argue, than most other super majors in the world. They run with like a Western approach. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a lot of independent directors, uh, and so you know there is, I think, value there. But of course, you wouldn't want to generally put too much of your portfolio there because you have political tail risk, right? It's, it's obviously the United, mm-hmm. United States and Russia are not on friendly terms. We also saw what happened in China in recent months that shows mm-hmm. that you know if, when you're exposed to these other types of regimes, you have that risk. And so essentially what I do is mm-hmm. I pick a few different markets and I diversify. So I, I like India, I like Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, at these levels, I, I, you know, I think you can speculate with China. It is obviously had to be very, very careful there mm-hmm. uh, with position sizing. Um, I like uh, you know certain countries in 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 South America. Uh, you know, Brazil's been very beaten down lately. Um, uh, I, you know, so mm-hmm. I think that there's a bunch of markets out there where, you know, especially if you combine say some degree of tacticals with fundamentals, if you look for you know, signs of stabilization upturns, those are places to at least keep on your radar, I think, to consider overweighting uh, up to a certain, you know, risk point. So uh, put forward a thesis and want you to respond to it because I think it's sort of in line with your narrative. Uh, Chinese internet companies. I look at uh, Alibaba and I see a company growing faster than Amazon that trades at a forward PE of 16 versus 60 at Amazon. They just look, look like it's a fire sale. Huge macro risk. But the thesis is the government wants to send a signal. It doesn't want to kneecap these companies, that it still needs its winners. It still needs them to be economically viable. It still has a lot of information aid workers they want to see employed. Is this like an, an – I, I look at – and I've been wrong. I thought Alibaba was a buy three months ago, and it's off 30% since then. This feels like an incredible opportunity. Granted, some real, a real significant macro risk here, but there's just very few companies of this quality you can buy at these values. Your thoughts? So I, I generally agree with that. Uh, basically, I would, I would describe it as I think there's a high probability that those Chinese internet companies will say outperform over the next five years compared to say the mm-hmm. S&P 500. Uh, but then there's that tail risk where right. you, you literally could get a, a big fat zero, for example, if something crazy happens. If you know, because mm-hmm. those have not that those companies would maybe go to zero, but for example, you know, you you have more complex legal rights and risks mm-hmm. uh, as an American, say, investing in that company. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we recently seen political risk. But overall, I think if you look at Alibaba, Tencent, JD, uh, and some of those others, uh, you know, those, I think, are pretty attractive risk-reward opportunities here, especially if you manage position, because you know it's somewhat asymmetrical. If you do a small position, you can get a very large return from them, potentially. Uh, and if you only bet a small position, uh, the, if, if there's that say, less likely tail risk of, of, say, you know, just completely, you know, fails to ever recover for one reason or another, uh, then you haven't bet your entire portfolio on it. Another thing is that one of the biggest risks in China that's playing out now is that they have a lot of real estate debt. So when people talk about debt in China, it tends hmm. to be pretty localized. So they have, you know, there's there's less, say, debt at the sovereign level, um, uh, but you do see strong balance sheets with these internet companies, and a lot of the debt is localized into those other sources. So if you wanted to, say, invest in China, but minimize your exposure to that sort of, that area, then some of those internet companies are, are, you know, theoretically a safer way to do it. Coming up after the break. We generate more electricity than we use, and we have to, so that we have a reliable grid. You know, if we had a perfect 
supply demand balance, then you know the marginal laptop turning on would cause a brownout. So of course we have to have this excess supply and Bitcoin miners actually come in and kind of soak that up. Stay with us. So let's pivot to crypto. You actually have a background in electrical engineering. Let's let's talk about crypto and energy consumption. You feel as if it's been overstated. Yeah, for a couple of reasons. Because one is the way that Bitcoin scales. Uh, it generally, over time, there's fewer coins issued uh, every 10 minutes. Uh, so every four years, there's something mm-hmm. called a halving. So fewer Bitcoins get created. Uh, and that's why Bitcoin asymptotically approaches 21 million coins uh, in existence. So it's already, you know, it's already mined well over 18 million of them. Um, and so if you look at, say, miner revenue, which is kind of the top end for for energy consumption, right? Because they're the ones buying the energy. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, it'll end up being just a percentage of that because they have other expenses. They they hope to earn a profit, things like that. But if you look at miner revenue, that keeps shrinking over time as a percentage of both Bitcoin's market capitalization and Bitcoin's transaction annual transaction volume. And that's because oh, in, in the earlier days, that block subsidy was very, very large. Uh, and so Bitcoin mining revenue was pretty big relative to the size of the ecosystem. Whereas over time, that approaches just transaction fees uh, rather than new coins being issued. Uh, and so it should become more and more energy efficient relative to its size over time. And then the other key factor would be that most, for the most part, it's a unique energy buyer because they need cheap energy, but they're willing to go mm-hmm. to remote locations because unlike a data center, they don't need 100% uptime. They don't need massive bandwidth. They, they can deal with periods of downtime and they can all they need is a basic internet connection. And so they can go out to remote sites, for example, where there's stranded energy uh, or and they can also move, for example, s- seasonally. And so they can actually soak up energy that's, that's not really being used because throughout the whole world, we, we generate more electricity than we use and we have to so that we have a reliable grid. You know, if we had a perfect supply demand balance, then, you know, the marginal laptop turning on would cause a brownout. So, of course, we have to have this excess supply. And Bitcoin miners actually come in and kind of soak that up. And so, you know, you can always find anecdotal cases of, you know, an issue happening because of a Bitcoin miner. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a small percentage of global energy. Uh, It's increasingly efficient and it uses it in a unique way that's mostly a non-rival electricity source. Are you bullish on Bitcoin or all of crypto? How do you discern between the different coins or um, different types of companies that are piggybacking off the off the phenomena. So that would depend on time frames. Generally, so my fundamental mm-hmm. view is bullish on Bitcoin specifically. Uh, but historically what mm-hmm. we've seen is that during Bitcoin bull runs because of the there's a lot of enthusiasm in the space, a lot of capital pours into other tokens as well and many of those actually outperform Bitcoin. But a risk that you see generally is that say that the coins doing well in one cycle are generally different coins in the next cycle. So most coins don't survive through multiple cycles and keep building value like Bitcoin has. There's a very poor track record for most of them. Uh, and so, you know, there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum. Those are kind of the two that have have developed some degree of a network effect. Uh, and then down from there, it's, it's far more speculation. And then even if you look at Ethereum, there's a lot of interesting development going on. But if you look at the way that, say, the protocol works, you know, they're still changing the underlying base layer. They're, they're changing from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, you know, they, ha- they have 
something called difficulty bombs in the code that basically kind of would, would otherwise kill the chain. And so it kind of forces them to do a hard fork to update to a new chain. So it kind of gives more power to the developers. They're able to change their monetary policy, whereas a Bitcoin is a lot more solidified network, right? So it's, it's not, it's very, it change, it's mm -hmm. by design, it's changing very, very slowly on the base layer. And a lot of the development is on higher layers like Lightning, uh, an, an open source network that runs on top of Bitcoin uh, and some of these, you know, side chains that kind of connect to it and things like that. Uh, and so overall, I think, I think the real story long-term is probably Bitcoin. Uh, and I view most of these other tokens as more like equities in the sense that they're not decentralized in the way that Bitcoin is. They, they generally still rely on central development hubs. Uh, they, they have, you know, the developers have more ability to change the monetary policy or other details of the code. And then most of them lack the network effects that say Bitcoin and Ethereum have. You've done some research on bubbles. What are the symptoms of a bubble and how many of those symptoms apply or don't apply to crypto right now? So the short version is that it's funny because crypto's had multiple bubbles, um, but that has not really stopped mm -hmm. it from continuing to adopt. Uh, and so generally, you know, signs of a bubble obviously are massive gains in a short period of time, euphoria uh, around uh, the area, mm -hmm. excessive leverage where people expect that they can take on undue risk with, with the anticipation that the, that level of return will continue uh, and then specifically continue without massive drawdowns. They would, they would, uh, liquidate you from that exposure. Generally, they're in a bubble. There's a very large disconnect between what the future will bring versus what the future ends up actually bringing. So, an example would be the dot-com bubble, where obviously there was really, really, uh, really like valuable technology there, but it was bid up to such high valuations that the vast majority of those companies bid up to those valuations became untenable, and only a handful of them, like for example, Amazon we're able to bounce back in any kind of reasonable period of time. Uh, and so generally what we see in the crypto space is, you know, you have these, these bear markets and then you have these bull markets, which historically have happened generally shortly after Bitcoin's halving cycle. So it, when, when new supply gets cut in half, uh, you know, they're, they're every 10 minute uh, new coin issuance gets cut in half. That has historically been one of the catalysts for a bull market across the whole space. And then generally you get more and more of these junky projects issued and people don't focus on fundamentals. Like they can't explain why say Dogecoin is different than Bitcoin. What, what are the fun, what are the technical details that are different? Uh, and then they just buy across the board. They speculate, they, they take more risk in a volatile asset than they should. Um, and then they start talking about how it's going to revolutionize everything and it's going to happen very quickly. And because a lot of those tokens are created and issued, eventually they exhaust buyers, right? So, you know, even though Bitcoin's mm -hmm. scarce, a thousand other projects that come along with all these promises of what they're going to do, people pour into them instead. And eventually they reach, reach such euphoric levels, they exhaust buyers. And then the whole thing crumbles like a house of cards and say 99% of those tokens don't make new highs in the next cycle several years later, whereas Bitcoin and then maybe a few others do. Uh, so I would say that you know, earlier this year, we, we had bubble levels. Like when you saw, say, Dogecoin mm -hmm. going up to, I think it was 70 cents a share. When you saw, you know, the whole space was just going vertical. That had bubble characteristics. We washed out a lot of that. Um, you know, I think that there's a pretty good risk at the NFT area, so non-fungible token area that's happening in some of the smart mm -hmm. contract platforms where, you know, there's like a, a, 
a picture. There's a JPEG. Anyone can copy it, but there's like a essentially a signed receipt for it on the blockchain so that you kind of own, you could call it the original. Uh, you know, those now trade for millions of dollars in some cases. Um, and I think that looking back several years now, there's a, a pretty decent chance that they won't be at those levels. Uh, kind of like the the ICO coin mania uh, from back in 2017. So I would say that there probably are a lot of over-enthusiastic areas of the market right now. I wouldn't necessarily characterize Bitcoin as one of them, uh, but Bitcoin is very volatile. And, and obviously, investors have to take that into account when they construct a portfolio. So advice, not to your younger self, but advice to our younger selves. We have a, we have a fairly young listenership, but oftentimes I get emails saying, well, I, I want advice as well. From an investment standpoint of your, your human capital and your financial capital, it sounds like a big theme. And this is just, I think, one of the few remaining pillars that stands the test of time is one, diversification. Sounds like you're, you think that a lot of good companies in emerging markets might outperform that the kind of U.S. equities trade on once it's been played out, but it's looking expensive. A certain exposure to crypto, uh, specifically, you, you seem to be a fan on a risk-adjusted basis of Bitcoin because of some of the scarcity credibility it has versus versus some of our currencies, which seem to be losing their scarcity credibility every day with the printing. What, what other advice uh, from an investment standpoint or even more so from a professional standpoint would you give your 25-year-old self or, or some of our younger listeners out there on how to allocate their finite capital, their human and their financial capital? So I think we cover the portfolio aspects pretty well, basically being diversified, mm -hmm. trying to find areas that are maybe unloved, but then also looking at these structural things that have a good probability of, of structural growth. So I still like some tech mm -hmm. stocks, for example, uh, and I think, you know, Bitcoin's, you know, has a good chance of, you know, continuing having a really good decade kind of compounding from the prior decade. And so at least watching that space and having an allocation, I think is important. When we get into say other aspects, you know, I think we're in this, this stage where, you know, people have to think very hard about the career they choose or not even career at this point because things change so rapidly now, more like the skill set that you want to build. Uh, and so it mm -hmm. used to be that you could, you could take on a lot of student debt without really thinking about it and then enter the, work, the workforce. Whereas I think now you have to be more selective uh, in terms of, say, taking on student debt or, you know, what kind of careers you you pursue. And so overall, I think, you know, one of the most powerful things we have now is that you can, you don't have to go all in on one career. I mean, the way I accelerated mm -hmm. out of, you know, because I, I, I went into a lot of student debt. I was, I was you know, I did not come from a wealthy family. Uh, and the way that mm -hmm. I was able to ex accelerate, say, my wealth compounding was by always having a side hustle and, and building other skills hmm. outside of my core area. So either either selecting a, say, one one obvious thing, like obviously if you were going to medical school or something like that, it's, you know, you're going into a high income profession, it's going to eat up your life and you really you have to generally focus on that. But if you're in many other types mm -hmm. of work, you can have a side hustle on the side. And the, the math that I like to point out is that, like, let's say you earn you know, say 60,000 a year, your expenses are 40,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're saving 20,000. Well, if you can go earn another 20,000, you're only increasing your income by 33%, but you're increasing your savings rate by a hundred percent, assuming you, you keep your expenses flat. And so that's one of the biggest accelerators. That that's someone, the hard part, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but 
I, I generally also find that stoicism if and the discipline to save. Yeah, and I generally find that if you are doing something you enjoy that you're also good at, you you get flow that state of flow mm-hmm. from doing it. You end up spending less on on frivolous things uh, because you're enjoying mm-hmm. the type of work you do. Uh, and so generally, it's 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 one of those things where it's simple but not easy. But you know, find ways to increase your income. And just I think once someone kind of fully grasps that math, where it doesn't take a large income boost to literally double your savings rate um, if you are seeking out those sources of income and while simultaneously holding your expenses flat. Lynn Alden is a full-time investor and independent analyst. She founded Lynn Alden Investment Strategy in 2016 to provide institutional-level research online to institutional investors and retail investors. Her work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Business Insider, Market Watch, and CNBC. And she's also served as a consultant to startup companies, hedge funds, and executive committees. You can find her research at lynnalden.com. That's L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N.com. She joins us from Atlantic City, New Jersey. Lynn, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Algebra of happiness, the lanes within which we are comfortable operating. I found that I've gotten older. Uh, I have a certain algorithm or a path that involves the types of activities, the places, and the people I want to do things with. And I have become less and less open to new activities, whether it's going on a boat ride around Manhattan, which I was invited to do yesterday and I said no, whether it's investing in a new friendship uh, that could evolve into something. I just kind of have my gig. And I noticed specifically with someone older in my life um, that she has become somewhat agoraphobic, that she doesn't like to leave the house, uh, is only comfortable being around certain people. We talked about doing a 70th birthday party for this individual, and she did not want to do it. And what I've noticed is, and I recognize this in myself, that as we get older, we find the things that we like and we become more fearful. And it's a, I don't know if it's less comfortable or more fearful. And this is your brain telling you it's time to die, that it's the unexpected, that it's new relationships, that it's new stimulation that uh, force our brain to adapt, to be malleable, to release a hormone, to get, you know, to get, a, to, to get a rush of the right chemicals in the morning, to get the cortisol, whatever it is going. And if you wanna live longer and you wanna be healthy and you wanna lead a rewarding life, You need to constantly take the time to stop, push out your arms, and make sure that the lanes and the guardrails within which you are comfortable operating get pushed out and don't close in on you. It is very easy to decide, I want to stay at home, I only want to interact with the following people, and I want to maintain the certain types of experiences, whether it's food or relationships or even in the emotions I feel. You need to get out there. And this is something that old people need to do or people my age need to do to live longer and really enjoy life. And this is absolutely something you have to do as a young person. Nothing wonderful will happen to you if you do not constantly, constantly push those borders out and go to different places and open yourself to different types of relationships and be willing to explore friendships with people that you otherwise think you wouldn't be interested in being friends with, that you don't take risks and meet people, go to that party, go to that dinner party, try something new, 
try something new. Force yourself. If you are not uncomfortable, if you are not uncomfortable with the things you do, you are not going to have as many as people in your life to love. You are going to die sooner. Push the boundaries out. Push the boundaries out. If you are not regularly pushing yourself to a level of uncomfortableness, to a level of a little bit of anxiety, you aren't living life. Push those boundaries out. Do something different. Be open to new experiences. Be open to new friendships. Be open to new opportunities. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. Thanks to Canva for their support. You're busy, there's no denying that, and we all wish for just a little more time in the day. So why not let Canva help you get your work done faster and more efficiently? You can get started with their AI-powered presentations. Just describe what you want with a few words and Canva will generate amazing slides in seconds. It's AI that anybody can use, no matter what department you work in or whatever task you need to get done. Finish your deck faster. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.